Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions. Starting to learn more about value stocks rather than growth stocks. You guys are saving me a, a lot of money. And provides unbiased answers. All right. Well, you're looking at historical blue chip names, and they've endured. Their brands have endured. Invest Talk. Over 42 million downloads and counting. Across America and around the world, your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, June 23rd, 2022 edition. I'm Justin Klein, and I look forward to your questions. Anything money related, investment related, I am here to field your questions and give you my unbiased answers as always. And most of, mostly your questions are going to drive today's podcast. That's what we do each and every day is try to understand what our listeners, you guys are thinking, feeling, and interested in talking about. I can talk about whatever is on my mind, but ultimately this show is about you. Now you're probably thinking about bear markets, inflation, a recession, and all that is is natural when you're in times like this. But my job is to keep your eye on the ball, keep giving you tools to make good investment decisions, keep emotions out of those decisions, and keep your eye on the facts and the opportunities, as well as the risks. So you need to focus. And that's what we're here to do is to try to get you get your mindset in the right direction. And it'll be my goal to help you understand the current market environment that we're in, avoid the pitfalls and capitalize on opportunities. So I invite your phone calls and questions now. Or if you're listening after hours, you can leave a message on our anytime listener line, which is 888 chart as always. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Oh, we're going to go to Chris in Florida looking at Mosaic. Uh, hey, Justin, thanks for the show. And thank you guys for everything that you do. Um, I was looking at Mosaic here. Uh, saw it's around like 45 now. I know that, um, you know, we kind of like it. And I was looking at maybe picking up some uh, maybe 37 or 35, just wondering what your thoughts were. 
Yeah, uh, we actually just started to pick Mosaic back up. We trimmed it. I think we eliminated it uh, back up in the mid to high 60s. Now it's at 45 and change today. So it, it does look like a good buy high volume today after this large pullback. And that was the commodity space in general, uh, kind of shaking out a lot of weak hands. And it is into some major support. Uh, now, the slowdown in the economy certainly is going to impact them some. But at the end of the day, the need for fertilizers, phosphates, uh, feed, potash, etc. around the world are, are only increasing with what's happening over in Ukraine. So uh, I do think this is a good time to pick up Mosaic. Thanks for the call. Now, my focus point today is based on this question. Has the Fed already created the next recession? And one opinion frames the argument this way. The longer term structural issue is the fact that we grew the money supply by six and a half trillion dollars. So we're going to look at that and give you my two cents of what's what's been driving the economy over the past couple of, of years and what will drive it going forward uh, as we maybe are in a recession, heading into a recession. We're going to unpack that a little bit more in detail. And then I will look at gas prices and gasoline demand. That's in the commodities market. The old saying is always high prices bring higher, bring lower demand, right? There's the demand response to higher prices as well as the supply response. Now, we talked a bit about the supply response not being as reactive as it's been in the past because of lack of investment, because of ESG, uh, because of incentives within oil and gas companies, etc. But there's always the demand side as well, which will react at some point. And I'm going to look at data that's saying the American consumer is starting to react. And we're going to look at that data. Also, how is the globe going to redeploy supply chains so that they are more resilient? And what will that mean for the global economy longer term? So we're going to look at that. And then lastly, companies are taking a fresh look at financing costs. This is something that the average investor, average person doesn't think about. But in corporate boardrooms, they're absolutely thinking about that. Because cost of capital is an important driver to investments that they make in the in their business, uh, in the ability to buy back shares, pay dividends, just keep a solid balance sheet. And especially for companies that have hefty amounts of debt, this can be a big driver to a tougher profit margin or lower profit margin. And so we're going to look at what they are thinking and what that might mean for earnings going forward. So that's what's on my mind. But ultimately, I want to know what's on your mind. So give me a call. 888-99-CHART is how you get through and ask your question today. Now, let's look at the market. The SP was up about 36 points. And this was the first real signal for me that the market is starting to price in deflation. That it's pretty clear now. With the 10-year, the 10-year has pulled back pretty dramatically, down nine basis points today. And so the peak was about th almost three and a half on the 10-year. And in just the span of, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six trading days, we are now, we, we hit 
almost 3% earlier today. Still in around 3.07, but still, that is a big move in just six trading days. And what you see, what you see happening in the commodities market is also an indication, you know, with the pullback, which is what you're seeing, you're seeing a drop in a, a lot of different commodities and a, and a pullback still, most of them are in a broad uptrend, but a pullback is natural, especially uh, when the Fed is after demand destruction. That's what the Fed is trying to do. And it looks to me that the market is starting to price in and say, hey, you did it. Your tightening cycle, your rhetoric, your raising rates has created a slowdown in the economy that is probably borderline, borderlining, borderlining? What's the word I'm looking for? It's borderline a recession. <laughs> Let's just say that. And, you know, whether we're in one now or it happens in the back half of the year, uh, I, I think the, the market's starting to price in the Fed pivot. That's why you saw a little bit of a rebound in growth stocks. And that is something that you have to, uh, if, you, if you have a bunch of growth stocks and you, you've gotten killed, this might be your opportunity. You might see a bear market rally in a lot of those names in the near term as the market starts to price in uh, a deflationary regime. And a deflationary regime means uh, weaker uh, or looser Fed policy, lower interest rates, uh, outperformance of growth over value, which will happen. I've talked about value over growth, and I do think that's a long-term trend, but there will always be counter-trend periods where growth will outperform, especially after this large drop. If interest rates do moderate a bit, you probably will see a relief rally, short covering rally in that space. And it could be pretty quick, pretty dramatic. So be aware of that, that this may be your opportunity to start to start to trim some of those growthier names uh, after they've had such a big drop. And I know a lot of people like to get back even, you might get that chance. We'll see. Now it's Invest Talk Thursday. I'm Justin Klein, and we're moving into a break. But I'm here on duty, ready to answer your finance and investment questions. So give me a call at 888 chart One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors. And I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. So as long as your questions involve the stock market or general investment topics and definitions, we set no limits. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Justin and I are ready. Are you? Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888-99-CHART. Eight 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 ninety nine chart eight eight nine nine two four two seven eight. Let's just go right into our main focus point today, which is: Has the Fed created the next recession? Now, the fact that the Fed expanded their balance sheet by six and a half trillion uh, that enabled the government to go out there and spend. Uh, both administrations uh, spent a lot of money over the past couple of years, and. Typically, it takes 12 to 18 months for all that government spending to get into the system. And as of April of last year, inflation went from about 2.7 to a little over 4%. And we hadn't seen 4% for a while, but you can see that that was about a year after the government started spending a lot of money, right? Getting money into people's hands, uh, emergency unemployment benefits, 
all the things to combat the slowdown in the economy during the COVID crisis. Now, in June of 2021, it got above five. In October, six. Over seven in December. And as of February, it was 7.9. So there's that kind of full 18 months or so post-COVID um, you know, the COVID crisis and the government really just throwing the kitchen sink at it. And with the Fed there to backstop, monetize the debt, etc. That's why you're seeing a lot of this inflation. Now they're trying to reverse that quickly. And I think they're doing a good job. And it's probably going to get inflation down pretty dramatically uh, here. Uh, but inflation near term has certainly stagnated above kind of around that 8% level post the Ukraine invasion around February 24th. Since then, inflation's ticked up a little bit from 7.9 to about 8.3. So that's really the inflation picture over the past couple of years. Now, will higher rates, though, will that spin us into a recession? And I think the simple answer is yes. I think they've gone to the point where they're going to spin us into a recession. Now, does that mean that uh, everyone thinks a recession, they think of 08? Uh-uh. Not all recessions are 08. In fact, the vast majority of recessions are not 08. There's only really one other time in you know modern American history where you could say there's similar 08, which was 1929, which turned into a depression. And typically, typically you're not going to have a similar type of event and then the next recession be as bad. Doesn't typically work like that. Uh, this will probably be a recession very similar to 2000, 2003. Definitely concentrated in tech, slowdown, layoffs there, uh, tough housing. I think I think the layo the, the increased or the difference in this cycle will be the housing market will be weaker. Then the Fed really lowered rates pretty fast, uh, and tech stocks still crashed because I think there was a lot not a lot of companies that tread true businesses. Uh, and right now you're having uh, you know the, the Fed kind of choke off that that demand for for housing, and I think. They're they're do they're slamming on the brakes, and so it's probably going to spin us into a mild recession. The diff another difference though is that tight labor market. About four point three million people a month are quitting their job and looking for something new. It's called the great great res resignation. But the main point is that there's still a tight labor market and people still have jobs. But the balance sheets of people are starting to are starting to weaken. Uh, as of April 2021, the amount of debt on balance sheets, personal balance sheets, started to take off again after really repairing with all that that fiscal capital that uh, you know consumers got in 2020. And so there's still room for them to continue to spend, but a lot of them are going to have to come back on the market. So I do think unemployment going to take up. Now, how dramatically? Probably not back to 10% like we were in, in 08. But once again, a mild recession. So they answered the question, has the Fed created the next recession? In my opinion, they have, uh, but it's probably a, a recession that is necessary. That was a good deal of valuable information in the KPP premium newsletter. And when you subscribe at investtalk.com, you will receive the newsletter each Saturday morning via your inbox. Now we're heading into a break, so give me a call at 888-99-CHART. You've got a portfolio to grow and protect, and this is no time to lose focus. So get your finance and investment questions together and call Steve Peasley and Justin Klein. 
They're ready with their unbiased answers. Invest Talk, 888 99 Chart. Hi, my name is Fabian from Armona, California, and I'm calling about a question. This is for both of you. Okay, so you guys say that stocks move because not retail investors are buying, but because institutionals and hedge funds are buying. Now, they've been doing this for years, and I don't understand why hedge funds just keep their money and not sell and just hold so the stocks will go up. I don't understand why they panic sell when hedge fund managers and institutions have been doing this for over probably 10, 15, 20 plus years of experience. Why are they selling short? Why don't they just hold all of the hedge funds and let it go up instead of selling short or stocks falling? Because I just think that the market is manipulated. Like they, when they raised the rates, stocks went up. But then the next day, stocks tanked and went down. I'm just wondering if the institutions and the hedge funds managers, why do they always sell? Why don't they just hold and just not sell and watch the stocks go up? Because you guys always say that hedge funds and institutions move the market. Now, I need some explanation because it's just seems like it's manipulated to me. And these guys have so much experience and they've been doing this for years. Why don't they just buy and hold? I don't understand why they sell that. My only uh, guess is because their customers want them to sell. They're panicking and the customers want them to sell that they're working for. Anyways, love the podcast. I'd like to hear your, both of your guys' answers to this question. Anyways, thank you very much. All right, long question. Uh, but you kind of got the answer near the end, which is their customers redeem. Uh, and when I say that, when we talk about institutions, that does mean hedge funds, but it also means mutual funds as well, ETFs, etc. right? Anything, any type of fund, it would be typically considered uh, an institution, pension funds, etc. So it's not just hedge funds. And I think there's one misnomer that most people have when it comes to hedge funds is that they're always hedging. They have different a hedge fund, there are a wide diversity of strategies that hedge funds in general execute. Some are long short hedge funds, some are long only, some focus more on currency trading, others focus more on uh, leverage bond trading, etc. So it runs the gamut and, and they are typically more complex than your average mutual fund. That's certainly true. But don't ever think of hedge funds as they just short the market or something like that because you hear the word hedge. So that's that's the first thing. Second is that they do kind of get in, into crowded trades. There's and and they're not a whole lot different than retail traders. To be honest with you, they chase trends, they chase performance, uh, and they need to keep up with the performance. So they need to be in things that are. Uh, moving well, that are performing. And what that does is they they have, they have shareholders, they have, they have uh, limited partners within their hedge fund that they have to, they're investors, right, that they have to answer to. And so they want to show that they have co companies that are doing well, their stock price is going up, etc. And that makes a lot of, they call them hedge fund hotels, very crowded trades where a lot of hedge funds get in and are riding that wave. And then when it turns 
it goes south very fast. Tiger Global's one recently, uh, we talked, I think I talked about it, where uh, two-thirds of their gains from their beginning, from 2000, I think, four was their beginning. They've lost two-thirds of their gains from that entire period over the past year, nine months or something like that. So, yes, they, they should have had better risk management. They should have been stopped out, et cetera. But mainly they should have just understood the economic backdrop that they were in. Are, uh, so understand that just because they're professional doesn't mean that they don't make mistakes, Does and especially in aggregate. A lot of them are overpaid. Uh, they're just following kind of the crowd, uh, and they're, they're not any better than a lot of average investors. And, and that's certainly true for a lot of hedge funds. So it's easy to say woulda, coulda, shoulda, um, but a lot of these hedge funds don't have the proper risk management skills, the proper macro uh, economic analysis skills to really drive a, an asset allocation model that is going to outperform. Uh, it's more of working off of a name, working with big money, uh, and a lot of a lot of them really aren't that great. Um, so uh, it's not market manipulation. It's not. It's just bad traders. And there's a lot of those out there that ride a wave and don't recognize. When things are going well, they, they kind of get high on their own supply, right? They just, they love what they're, th th they're doing. They think it's going to continue forever. And as you know, as my grandpa always said, no tree goes to the sky. And there's always cycles. There's always markets where things change. And a lot of them get caught. Hope that helps. Now, the next invest talk, the story behind this headline. The current bear market comes after the shortest one in U.S. history. Today's bear market has been fueled by several factors, including inflation, fallout from the Russia-Ukraine war, and a slowdown in the Chinese economy, as well as, obviously, re recession fears. And Steve will get to that story tomorrow. But for now, I'm Justin Klein, and I'm ready to answer your questions right here on Invest Talk. We have about... 25 minutes left on the show. So if you are going to do it, it goes by fast. I encourage you to do it sooner rather than later. So give me a call at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, Stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently. 
by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for InvestTalk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Hey guys, just want to get your thoughts on Uber, ticker symbol U-B-E-R. I'm just looking for this for a long-term play, probably at least 10, 15 years. Hope you just thought. Thanks. All right, talking about Uber. And this is a name that is down pretty dramatically with the rest of the growth stocks over the past year or so, down 57.3% from its 52-week high. And it has recently bounced uh, along with uh, a lot of the growth names. And it would not shock me to see this get a near-term bounce, or see a continuation of this near-term bounce along with those other growth stocks. But I just don't like the valuation still. I mean, $43 billion market cap, and it certainly has strong revenue, but it's been super inconsistent when it comes to profitability and cash flows. And that's why I just don't love it, to be honest with you, uh, long term. You know, its EBITDA margin is still negative. Uh, trailing 12 months, EBITDA is negative $27 billion. And I look at these Uber and Lyft, I just think that there's a lot of business risk with regulation when it comes to employment of Uber drivers. And I don't think people care whether they're taking a Lyft or an Uber or any other ride-sharing platform. Now, does it have some value? Sure. But is it worth $43, 44000000000 billion? I, I still don't think so. And they're just issuing more and more shares. Shares outstanding are now at about $2 billion. 10 years ago, they were about $1.7 billion. Excuse me, 10 years. Uh, two years ago. They were about 1.7 billion. So they continue to increase their shares outstanding to fund their negative cash flow. And as I've said before, those are the wrong type of businesses that you want to own in most environments, but especially in an inflationary environment with interest rates going up. So uh, the technicals look terrible. The business operations don't look too hot. And the multiple and the valuation still is very, very high. So pass on Uber. Let's go to Daniel in Palo Alto, looking at DQ, which is... Yes, thank you, Justin. Yeah, I'm, I'm usually wary of Chinese stocks, but uh, I made some money on this in two, two years ago and mm -hmm. was thinking about getting back in. It's a solar panel company, as you know. Uh -huh. And uh, particularly given that the president just lifted uh, trade restrictions. Yeah, they are talking about that. Um, I, I do think that near-term... Chinese stocks are, are probably going to find some strength. Their economy is recovering from their COVID lockdowns earlier this year. And that typically gives a boost to those type of uh, type of names. Now, long-term, 
uh, uh-uh. I don't think China is go. I, I, I'm not bullish on China long term. I think they have too many geopolitical issues. Uh, their supply chains are going to be uh, redeployed back here uh, in North America, and their cheap energy is kind of gone um, or is being legislated away. And so I just don't like these type of names. In near term, I think it's fine. I think it's probably going to go up a little bit uh, from here, but not a name that I would be owning long term. And then you, you layer on the regulatory risk when it comes to Chinese listed companies and their, uh, you know, their ability to audit the companies in a, in a clear and concise way. Uh, and I think a lot most of these companies are going to get delisted. Um, so once again, near term, fine, but long term, not something I don't. Excellent. Thank call. you so much, Justin. No problem. Now let's touch a bit on gas, gas prices, and mainly gas demand. In the first full week of June, gasoline station, uh, gasoline sales at U.S. stations were down 8.2% compared to the same week last year. Now that's the 14th consecutive week that sales are down from its 2021 comparative week. Now, President Biden has proposed in Congress a suspension of the federal gas and diesel tax for three months, uh, but that's probably not going to pass. There's not just Republicans, but some Democrats voicing opposition to this plan. A lot of it is because, guess what? If If you're having problems with higher prices, you need to do two things, either weaken demand or increase supply. What does this do? This does nothing. And it just shows you most of our politicians, they're managing to optics more than results. And so all this would do is just increase demand because prices temporarily would be a little bit lower. So I don't I don't I don't think that's probably going to pass, to be honest with you. A lot of that profit would just flow through to oil companies. Uh, And so that's unlikely to pass. But in the week ending June 10th, the EIA measured implied demand and showed that decline by roughly 110,000 barrels a day from the prior week to about 9.1 million barrels. That's down from 9.4 million barrels the same time last year. So these higher prices are having an impact on demand, as you would expect, but not in a dramatic fashion as of yet. Now, some people are carpooling more, taking mass transit, et cetera, driving to the office fewer days. I, I know that is a thing that is probably different than pre-pandemic. Most people, pre-pandemic, you had to go to work five days a week. Now, with hybrid situations, it's probably a little, instead of going in twice or three times a week, maybe you only go twice a week. Maybe you typically only go twice a week, and then you only go once a week because of the cost of gas, et cetera. Now, the average U.S. gasoline price is now back below $5 a, a gallon as of Wednesday, and oil has certainly pulled back near $100 a barrel once again from when it was sitting kind of uh, close to one around 120 just a few weeks ago. And what's interesting here is that it's mainly driven, once again, by individuals, not necessarily activity within the business economy, because the purchase of diesel, which is mainly used for trucking, heavy industries, etc., that's not having nearly as much of an impact on demand. And, but it doesn't mean there isn't any because freight drivers aren't seeing the 
requisite increase in the cost uh, or the price of moving things uh, compared to the cost of gas over the past year, or sorry, diesel in this case. And so it is impacting them at the margins, but the drop in demand is mainly driven by consumers. Now, gasoline prices have climbed to record levels, and a lot of that has to do with refining capacity. We're still about 800,000 barrels a day lower in refining capacity than we were before the pandemic, and a lot of that has to do with investment in current infrastructure. you got to keep those refineries uh, kept up and have R&D and have CapEx spending to maintain those. And during the pandemic, just like general investment in the oil and gas industry, refining capacity was also also uh, reduced and that hasn't fully recovered. Now, if you looked, if you talked to Murphy Gas Company, which uh, has 27 or operates stores in 27 states, they're not only seeing people switch from premium to mid and low grade fuels, but also cutting down on their purchases in convenience stores, restaurants, etc. So you're definitely seeing a pinch by consumers and demand destruction. All right, let's go talk to Jacob in Los Angeles looking at a mutual fund, FBALX, correct? Yes, Fidelity Balance Fund. Okay. Do you own it or looking to buy it? I own it. Okay. Well, for balance funds, this is a, a fairly good one. It's about 65% equities. 30% in fixed income. Its expense ratio is about 0.5%. Let's see. Let me double check that. Yeah, 0.5%, which is not too bad. But then the question is, where is it leaning on its equity allocation? And it is leaning on the growth side. So that's one issue that I have with it. Sector breakdown, only 4% in energy, 7.5% industrials, 2.6% in basic materials, and 3% real estate. And uh, financial services, 13%. That's the other sector that does well in an inflationary environment. Uh, but very, very low exposure to the right sectors. And mainly because it's indexing. And it's 25% in technology. Amazon is top holding, or Microsoft, excuse me, is top holding Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, NVIDIA, Meta Platforms. Those are the top holdings, ranking up over 10%. And so that's my issue with it, is that equity exposure. Now, on the bond side, it's a little bit better. Its effective duration is only 5.6%, a nice, solid kind of intermediate-term bond exposure. Credit quality is a little, honestly, too high, double A minus, which means that they have too much government, about 35% government. So this is really just indexing. And you know, do you want that kind of 70 30 setup of 70% equities, 30% bonds, and you don't want to just index, then this is fine. Kind of set it and forget it fund. If you want to do better, you want to have a, an allocation that's set, that's well balanced for this market environment with this inflationary environment, this is not going to be the one for you. So it's not terrible, but not going to really do that well in this environment. Thanks for the call. But, but it has five stars, oh. five morning it does have five stars. You're you're absolutely correct. It does have five stars, but that's looking backwards, right? That's looking because it's leaning growth and its setup has worked well in that environment. But as you can see, this is not an environment where just indexing is going to work very well when the indexes are leaning towards growth stocks, leaning towards tech stocks, not going to work. Near term, probably get a bounce. That's fine, like I've said, um, but this is not something you probably want to hold. You'll be able to do a lot better 
in something else this decade that is more set up for an inflationary environment. This is not set up for, to do well in an inflationary environment. So, so is call. there any balance fund that is that is geared and designed for this type of environment? Unfortunately, or, uh, most of them are not because most of them are just simply indexing. So you find a more active balance fund. I don't know any off the top of my head. I couldn't recommend it frankly, for you anyway, due to SEC rules. Um, but most of these balance funds, target data funds, etc., they just index because they're not there to really outperform. They're just there to gather assets and put you in index. It's easy for them, low cost, uh, low overhead, not a lot of work for them. This is working off Fidelity's name uh, and Fidelity's user base, right? So, yeah. So, are there? There probably are, but you have to do a lot of research and make sure you find ones that aren't just straight indexing. Thanks for the call, Jacob. Now, summer has officially begun as of Tuesday, so it's game on. And you got to keep in mind that volatility in the market means that you can't take your eye off the ball. And there's no summer break in the markets. It's always moving, always opportunities presenting themselves as well as risks rearing their ugly head from time to time, especially in markets like this. So the big question is, are you prepared? Is your portfolio well positioned for this environment like we talked about? Are you just in a fidelity balance fund? And you know, uh, that's probably not going to, to do very well. And you can just see, let me, I'll, I'll tell you the performance this year, you're down 18% on fidelity balance. Good example. So let me remind you that if you need help, you can reach out to myself or Steve Peasley at our company, KPP Financial, where we practice unbiased guidance, both on and off air and parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So I encourage you to take advantage of our free portfolio review assessment via telephone or go to meeting. Just head over to investtalk.com or call our office at 800-557-5461. We'd love to help you in any way. Now let's go to Noel in Napa looking at Buckle, BKE. Yeah. Hi, Justin. Um, yeah, I'm interested in that, and it looks like a great uh, company. Uh, I, I, because the uh, market is so volatile right now, and it's uh, and and of course we're into the summer time when it's uh, the market isn't going to probably do too much. Uh, would you be okay with me uh, just watching it through the summer, and then maybe like in the fall uh, do something with it, pick it up uh, at that time, or? Uh, What's your take on that? You talking about the market as a whole or buckle itself? Well, I'm I'm just thinking of the market as a whole, and uh, maybe I should just watch buckle uh, through the summer and then buy some in the fall. But uh, uh, of course, it's probably a pretty good price right now. So, uh, what's your take on that idea? Yeah, well, you know, I I've always said I think we'll find a bottom in the summer at some point. Now, is that early in summer? Maybe we saw it just recently. And the fact that oil broke, maybe that caused the Fed to pivot and the market rallies on that news. And it could rally for throughout this rest of the summer. That's certainly possible. So it's, I can't say where the bottom is. I don't have my crystal ball, sorry, in front of me. But the main point is you just have to find good investments that are at good prices and that you're comfortable with and holding through any kind of near-term volatility. 
Uh, Buckle, we own Buckle for our clients. It's in our cover call strategy. It gets good premiums, gets good dividends. We like the business. They typically have they're very consistent, strong cash flows, good balance sheet, and they typically pay big, big special dividends, which we really like. So return a lot of capital to shareholders. So Buckle, I'm a fan of, and I'd be buying it down here, to be honest with you. We're buying it for uh, for new clients because I, th- I think it's a fantastic value trading at uh, very, very reasonable valuation, enterprise value to EBITDA sitting down at around, uh, what, three, three and a half? <laughs> very, very cheap price sales ratio, a little over one. So, and they pay uh, about 5% dividend and huge, nice, solid operating margins of 25%. So we're fans of Buckle. Now, once again, on the markets, where is the exact bottom? I can't tell you, but it certainly could have happened last week. Could have been Friday. That was Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. And we have one goal here is to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So if you have questions for me, you want to give me a call right now at 888-99-SHARK. This is Invest Talk. For serious investors, it's all about achieving financial freedom. That's why the unbiased guidance offered by Steve and Justin is so valuable. The Invest Talk Anytime listener lines are open now, and Steve and Justin welcome your questions. Call 888 99 Chart. Let's go talk to Monica in San Francisco. How are you doing, Monica? Good. Thanks for taking my call. I have a question regarding silver in general. Like, it seems, you know, running down just like any other song. But do you. What, what symbol I mean, are you talking about? I'm holding it. Silver. Uh, SLV? Silver. Yeah. Yeah, SLV is oh, uh, ETF yeah. um, okay. that I have holding on. I was just curious what you think. Um, is this a, do you think silver will have another run, or do you think it's, it's a good time to get in to buy low, or it's not? I, I mean, I do think uh, long-term silver and gold will do well. It's obviously in a very long consolidation pattern since it's high in, uh, when was that? Gold high was kind of late 2020. So it's really just been consolidating since then. Um, Silver has certainly been a bit weaker, but kind of the same thing, same same kind of consolidation pattern, uh, pullback and into support. Uh, I think longer term, I think it'll do fine. Uh, it, It should be I think precious metals should be a part of everyone's portfolio to some degree. Now, is that 2% or 20% depends on your risk tolerance level, depends on your outlook. But uh, I, I do think that longer term, these prices are cheap for silver and gold. Thanks for the call. Now, lastly, let's touch on supply chains. And the 90s, 2000s, you had globalization really run amok. And... You also had a litany of natural resources coming out of Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union and all of the oligarchs who they didn't make billions off of people inside Russia. They made billions by exporting their natural resources, ownership of natural resources globally. So those things, globalization and flooding of natural resources, really drove disinflation for a few decades 
really through the financial crisis and through just recently. But if you if you study the trends, really since about the financial crisis, globalization has been slowing dramatically. And then you had populists continue to get elected here in the United States, uh, starting with Trump. And Biden, he's actually been even more populist with his trading, uh, with his more protectionist with his trading uh, plan, his uh, his the, the way that he's going about uh, dealing with tariffs, et cetera. He's institutionalized tariffs in a more direct way. Uh, and so all of this is driving more protection, more onshoring and manufacturing. And the pandemic is, is really reimagined uh, the global supply chains. And everywhere you look, supply chains are being transformed. Uh, inventories are rising pretty dramatically. And it's more about security and not efficiency. And priorities of doing business rely more on governments that are not autocrats. And the worry, though, is that this will descend into some sort of overprotectionism and worsen inflation in a time when inflation is very high. Now, after the Berlin Wall fell uh, in, in 1989, globalization really took off in a big way. And governments struck deals with dem democracies as well as autocrats. And this led to that trend of China rising, emerging markets in general, just getting a lot of capital flow. And a lot of companies are now rethinking this. And inventories for the biggest 300 firms globally have risen from 6% to 9% of world GDP, which means that many firms are adopting sourcing in, from multiple countries, longer contracts. And so this is also driving the inflationary dynamics you're seeing in the economy. Uh, so I really wanted to continue to harp on that because it's going to mean resiliency but it's also going to mean higher inflation longer term. Now, I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights for more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1-800-557-5461.